0: Long short haired weirdos,
1: The the government love the government love the government love the government. Love the government, love the government love Welcome the government, to the Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Dr. Brad Spelberg. Dr. Spellberg is Chief Medical Officer at the Los Angeles County University of Southern California Medical Center and the Associate Dean for Clinical Affairs at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. He's also the author of the recently released book, Broken, Bankrupt, and Dying, How to Solve the Great American Healthcare Ripoff, which we'll be talking about today. Dr. Spelberg, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, a lot of people, probably most people, I would think, would agree that there are some pretty serious problems with the American healthcare system. But what I found interesting first off about your book is it seems to me that you argue that even calling it a system is is kind of a reach. And I was thinking about that. And, and it seems to me that we have, I would say, a minimum of six systems, if, if you would even call them that. We have the employer-provided insurance, that I guess half of all Americans get insurance there, Medicare, Medicaid, the individual insurance market. Uh, the military and veterans' health systems and health care for the uninsured and so I thought maybe this would be a good place to start C- Can you talk a little bit how this sort of non system or system of systems kind of really sort of accidentally came about
0: yeah i mean it 's a great point and you know to to expound upon the six systems that you described employer funded insurance typically utilizes private insurance, essentially contractors, and there are myriad private insurance companies, each of which sells myriad health plans. So you end up with dozens and dozens and dozens of health insurance payers or health care payers, which results in chaos, administrative chaos and Enormous amounts of waste, as I describe in the book. That's financial waste, money just getting set fire to every year, and personal time waste. Why did we end up here? Unlike other countries in the world that have actually sat down and purposefully designed a healthcare system for their country in many different ways, there are private multi payer systems that were intentionally, rationally designed. The US system was never intentionally designed. It is in fact an accident of history. The reason why we have employer-based health insurance is two laws passed in 1942 that were designed to prevent post World War II inflation and to raise funds to enable the government to pay for World War II. They had nothing to do with health care delivery. But the consequences of those laws was a freeze in employee salaries in the 1940s, right at the time when companies were competing to hire people to manufacture the arms to fight the war while people were going overseas. And so there was a huge competition in the job market. And to prevent inflation, the government fixed wages, but they did not fix benefits. And so employee benefit became the way companies competed with each other to, to lure in employees. So they started pouring money into their benefit packages. And at the same time, the IRS created a tax break for insurance premiums. And so suddenly, both the employer and the prospective employee were delighted to have money moved from salary into insurance benefits, healthcare benefits. Because they'd get a tax rate on both ends from that package. And those two laws, the effect of those two laws was that in the United States, employer-sponsored health insurance went from eight million to eighty million in a decade. Wow. That was the beginning of our hilariously complicated US healthcare system. And then later you piled Medicare and Medicaid and the VA system on top. And just further fragment of the care mechanisms in the United States
1: so really then people who uh, complain or have problems with government getting involved in healthcare care really government is is to blame in a way for getting involved in that very strange way in the aftermath of World War II for what we have or don't have in a sense
0: yeah well, and it was an accident it was an intention that the, the laws had nothing to do with health care it was a side effect of those laws got it that created employer health insurance I, I would also point out two really important points about government involvement in health care. Most people are concerned about government delivery of health care. That is like in the UK, where the government owns the hospitals, employs the physicians and employs the nurses. Many fewer people are concerned about when government pays for health care. When you talk to people who are on Medicare, they generally love Medicare. That's the government paying the health insurance costs, but paying private doctors and hospitals to actually deliver the care. That's point number one. Point number two, if you look at international healthcare care systems, systems in which government either provides or pays for health care, generally outperform systems in which there is a private marketplace that is fragmented, And multiple different companies are participating in a fragmented market. So we need to get people past this hyperpolarization where on one side it's single payer and it has to be single payer. And on the other side, no, we won't accept that. It has to be private, multi-payer. We won't accept government. What we need to do is learn from our neighboring countries throughout the world and our peer countries what model makes the most sense
1: and and when we do look at these comparisons and as you point out in the book there are a lot of ways in which the US doesn't come out really well but one thing i hear especially from my friends on the right all the time and and i tend to agree is is about how incredibly advanced american healthcare is and for me being someone who was born and raised in cleveland you know we when i was growing up there was always the, the world leaders and other folks coming to the Cleveland Clinic to get their cardiac surgery and that sort of thing and and obviously it's not just Cleveland it seems to me that one way one thing we can point to with pride in the american system is that we are on the cutting edge in a lot of ways and is that is that the case would you would you agree with that
0: so <clears throat> yes we are on the cutting edge but no that doesn't mean we have cutting edge healthcare and okay that's a seeming paradox that I'm going to resolve for you. This is a really important point, and I'm very happy that you brought it up. In America, we have the most sophisticated healthcare technology in the world, and our physicians and nurses are amongst, if not the most highly trained in the world. Yet, we catastrophically underperform in healthcare delivery. And it's a, you can measure this by any way you want. To say that we have a good healthcare system is hilarious. We have, the shortest lifespan of any industrialized peer nation, if you look at OECD countries, that 36, 36 countries from across the globe that pool healthcare and financial information, including many poor countries, we rank 26 out of 36 in lifespan. That is way worse than many countries that are a lot poorer than us. If you look at mortality that is can be prevented by healthcare, Death that can be stopped by good healthcare delivery. From a survey of 75 countries across the world, we rank 35th. Now, the good news, so we're halfway. The good news is that we beat, you know, Kuwait. Um, the bad news is that we lost to Estonia.
1: Ooh, And yeah, that's right.
0: Probably... Um, so when you look at how we perform on death, on lifespan, it's atrocious, given that we spend $3.65 trillion per year on health care. That dollar amount, if it was its own economy, would be the fifth largest economy in the world. That is more money spent on health care in the United States than the entire gross domestic product of the UK. And for that massive expense, we live shorter lives? Something is wrong. Just because we have good technology highly trained doctors, doesn't mean we have an effective mechanism to deliver health care.
1: And so, in other words, even after we adjust for the size of our economy and population, we're spending pretty much however you want to measure it, way more than all of our peer countries, and we're doing worse in terms of what I guess you would say the four main things that we'd be concerned about with health care. Access cost, efficiency and effectiveness. Is that
0: all of them were worse off by far. We're at the bottom on those. Um, it, it literally at the bottom on all of those against computer nations. Now your point is a good one. So let's look at costs that are adjusted. You look at straight costs, three point six five trillion, the next most expensive healthcare system in the world China's, that's less than a trillion. They spend four times less money than us to provide healthcare to four times more people. Now you say, but they're poor. That's fine. Let's adjust those costs per person we or per GDP. You can do it either way. And if you're worried about wealth, the way to do it is to adjust per GDP. Whether you adjust per person or per GDP, we are still the most expensive country in the world. And we spend two to two and a half times more than European, Western European wealthy nations that um, are living much longer lifespans. So even if you adjust per person or per GDP, our costs are two to two and a half fold more than wealthy period.
1: Wow. So I think the question that a lot of people would ask at this point is, well, this money has to be going somewhere. Is it uh, you know, for, for, for doctors to get, I don't know, Ferraris or hospital administrators or insurers? I mean, who's, someone's making money off of this. And who is it?
0: Yeah. And it turns out that it's a lot of people. It's not one group. Let's start with doctors. Now, of course, you realize that I have a conflict of interest. <laughs> yeah. Doctors, right. So people need to factor that in. And I'm very overt about this in the book. I'm a physician. So when I tell you what I'm going to tell you, you need to factor that in. It is true that physicians in the United States more make more money per physician than physicians in most other countries. But here's the wrinkle. When you look at the cost to the healthcare system, it isn't a matter of how much an individual physician, is. it's a matter of how much the total collective physician pays. And while we make more money, physicians in the United States per person than physicians in, in European countries or other countries, we also have fewer If you multiply the number of physicians times salary, and this was done in a very nice editorial by the famous uh, health economist, Zika Emanuel, published in JAMA a couple of years ago. It turns out we're in the middle to lower third of the world in nation in terms of cost for physicians overall. Because the reason physicians in this country make a lot of money is there is an intentional, explicit effort to limit the number of physicians. So it's supply demand. We have far fewer physicians per capita, so they get paid more per capita.
1: Got it. Okay. Where does
0: the rest of the money go? And I'll, actually, I'll take one more point. There is, however, an imbalance in specialty care and primary care. In this country, specialists make far more money than primary care doctors, and it's specialists who do procedures. The more invasive the procedure, the more elective the procedure, the more money you make. That is a side effect of fee for service medicine. And no other healthcare system in the world is like, yeah, yeah, do more things and we'll pay you more money. The more invasive, the more money you'll get paid. That is not an intelligent way to fund healthcare delivery.
1: Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that because it really seems, I mean, with most goods, we want more of whatever it is. But with healthcare, it's kind of weird because our ideal utilization of healthcare services for most people would be zero because we don't really care about how many tests. We just care about our health outcomes. So it's sort of very different than other markets.
0: Uh, It is different than most capital markets, but you could think of it like what should be a firehouse. Do you want to pay firemen for each fire they put out? Right. Or would you rather pay them a fixed amount of money because their goal is to not have fires happen and as soon as fires start, put them out as soon as possible we treat healthcare like a commodity. And so the analogy I use in the book is from the TV show Seinfeld, where there's an episode where uh, Jerry Seinfeld is worried that his car mechanic is ripping him off, (laughs) charging a bunch of money. And his friend George says, well, of course they're trying to rip you off. That's what they do. They tell you, you need a new Johnson rod in your car. How do you know? What's a Johnson rod? imagine going to your doctor, and this is why I always laugh when people say the answer is price transparency. Right. You go to your doctor, you go to me, you have an infection. And I say, you know what? You really need Zosin and linezolid to treat your infection, not amoxicillin. That's gonna be $1,000 a day instead of five. How do you know? Do you have the expertise to know what surgery you need? What antibiotics you should be treated with? No. This is not a realistic solution this idea that our solution to cost savings is tr- price transparency that works when you're buying a book right or a right. simple commodity that you don't need technical expertise to truly understand
1: yeah I, I think it's a great point it made me think when I went uh, in the book I remember thinking that you know a few years ago I went to an a, a op- ophthalmologist and he said well I could I could give you these generic drops, but I've really found that this brand name is better, but you're going to cost a little bit more. And my immediate thought was, um, well, okay, he knows, and these are my eyes, so I'm going to pay a little bit more. But, you know, I didn't know. How do you know? I mean, even me,
0: when I go talk to a specialist outside my area, I have to depend on their expertise. Right. And so I think it's not fair or realistic to expect people with no medical training to come in in a price transparency situation and say, you know what, I'm going to select that surgery or I'm going to select not to have surgery. That's not a realistic way for people to, to rein in costs. Where does the other cost go? To go back to your question. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We spend far more money on healthcare administration in this country than any other country in the world. In fact, if you compare us to single payer countries, we spend two and a half to three times more. That amounts to perhaps up to 500 Billion dollars per year in excess administrative costs. That's to not to deliver healthcare. That's yeah. just administration. Wow. Now we also waste, and there's a variety of types of waste. And um, experts like Don Berwick have calculated waste and have estimated that about one in every three dollars spent on healthcare in this country is pure waste. Where does that go? Middlemen, tests that weren't needed. So if somebody's making money selling you that test. Drugs that weren't needed, drug costs in this country, far higher than any other country in the world. Three to four times, 300 to 400% higher than in pure nations, pure waste. Why are we spending more for the same drug than someone who lives in our neighboring country? So the money gets diffused across multiple middlemen. What does an insurance company provide for you? Peace of mind, right? They don't deliver health care. Their profit is waste to you, the customer. Right,
1: yeah. And, and, you know, I've heard a lot of people argue that insurance itself is the problem, that really we should have more of a catastrophic model because as long as there are, you know, low or no copays. If there's a service, people are going to demand it even if they don't need it. And doctors might be and uh, providers might be more likely to provide it because they think, well, you know, I don't want to get sued and have somebody say, why didn't you run this test? Is that is that a big part of the problem in in your view? I think it is certainly
0: part part of the problem. The, The challenge with catastrophic only coverage is it works great if you're rich. But I don't think people, and there's patient stories in this book, Mm -hmm. will blow your mind. And hopefully they they had an impact for you. Oh, yeah. If you go in and have a surgery that you think you're fully covered for because you have great insurance, you're still going to end up with co-pays, co-insurance per diems, and you're going to end up getting hit with thousands of dollars in medical bills. Most Americans cannot simply absorb an out-of-the-blue, completely unexpected, five to ten thousand dollar bill that their insurance doesn't cover. So catastrophic coverage works great if you make a ton of money and you could, if something bad happens unexpectedly, absorb a ten thousand dollar bill. If not, that's not a luxury that you can afford. Right. And there's a reason why in this country five hundred thousand Americans per year declare bankruptcy due to medical bills. You know what that number is in Western Europe? Zero.
1: Yeah, that really that really hit me when you, you talked, when you uh, focused on medical bankruptcies in the United States. I mean, I knew it was a problem, but I wasn't really aware of the magnitude of it until I until I read that. And it really, really surprised me and stunned me. Now, one of the things I really appreciated, uh, you know, so many people who write about reform of anything, they write about it as if we live in some sort of, I don't know, series of test tubes or something like that. But you understand, and I really appreciate this, that we have to, for any kind of reform, take into account American culture and that, you know, something that might work in Sweden or, or China or something might not work here in the U.S. And you specifically mentioned two key cultural themes, and you call them don't tread on me and modern maximal consumerism. And I was hoping you could talk about those a little bit and explain why you believe they matter for healthcare reform in the U.S. context.
0: Absolutely. I'd like to, with your permission, to add a third fundamental theme, which is United We Stand. Right, okay, yeah. So, so let's start with the tension first. We'll get to, to maximal consumers. Let's start with the tension between Don't Tread on Me and United We Stand, both of which are fundamentally foundational to this country. They go back to the Revolutionary War, both of them. And they have repeatedly led to disagreements and conflicts throughout the history of our country. States' rights versus federal. Individuals versus collectivism, right? We tend to be less trusting of government in this country than people in Western Europe. That's not a value judgment. That is simply a statement of fact. Mm -hmm. Whether I agree with it or not is irrelevant. The fact is many Americans, Simply don't trust government. And if you go to those people and say, you must purchase a single-payer plan, they're going to be upset because they want choice. They believe in choice and they believe in competition. And I've had people tell me when I've said, um, the answer may not be as simple as single-payer. I've had people tell me, you're going to create classes of healthcare how can you advocate for anything other than single-payer? And my response is, look, I personally believe single-payer is the way to go. I've analyzed the data, objective, hardcore data. But I can tell you, for every one of those people who believe single-payer is the way to go, there's an equal and opposite person who thinks it's not. Right. And if we dig our heels into hyper-partisanship, it's, it's don't tread on me versus united we stand, and you have to pick a team, then nothing's going to get done And we're going to continue to be ripped off. And the answer lies in resolving that conflict. How do you create a system that allows the United we stand, but still with a choice, so that people don't feel trapped, constrained, forced, because the American spirit is going to push back against that and nothing's going to get done? Now, to your point about modern maximal consumerism, this is in a sense, <clears throat> in a sense, gets back to this issue of price transparency and how do you know what you need and, and what you want. The former chair of public health at Harvard was quoted at one point as saying some years ago the trouble with American healthcare is that Americans are the only people that think death is optional. <laughs> and if you tell an American, well, I can do this, 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 and this, they're going to say, yes, I want all of it. Yeah. The question is, is that really the right thing? Is it really, uh, I, I give examples in the book where people, physicians want to prescribe a drug that costs $250,000 per course and improves blood count recovery by five hours compared to control. But that's the most effective thing we have and they want me to use it. Yeah. All right. Where does that $250,000 come from? It comes from my budget. So am I going to spend it on that one person to get them five-hour faster blood count recovery? Or am I going to spend it on 50 kids who need asthma care? We're in a zero-sum budget game here, folks. We need to make some tough choices. We're trillions in debt. We're running trillion-dollar deficits. And perhaps it isn't the right thing to poke, prod, torture, you know, do expensive surgeries and give expensive drugs for everyone at all times as opposed to looking at how can we deploy our resources most intelligently to keep people healthy in the first place, so they don't end up needing that stuff on the back end.
1: You know, that reminds me of something that someone once said to me. Said, "Well, you know, you're you want to ration healthcare," and my response was, "Well, we always ration healthcare. It's just a matter of how it's done, right?"
0: Well, yes, and to your point. <clears throat> If you ask the person who has leukemia, should I spend, and this is not a made-up number, the million dollars on the chemotherapy for your one patient to prolong life by six months, they're probably going to say, yes, you could buy me six months, spend the million. If you ask the taxpayers who have to cough up the money, they may say, why are you spending a million dollars on one person to buy six months until they become that one person? It's easy to complain about healthcare rations until you go to the people and say, now put the bill. And then they complain about how expensive it is. We need to make some tough choices. And as I say in the book, the easiest way to make that choice is to intelligently design a system so that you're spending money upfront to keep people out of the hospital in the first place. And instead of spending a million dollars for the chemo, what if we actually did negotiate negotiate down prices of drugs? like every other country in the world does. So I don't have to choose between a million dollars or nothing. The choice is instead $50,000, which is a lot more tolerable to a system that has to care for everybody.
1: Now, do you worry that, and some people have said that yeah, if we negotiate down the prices of drugs and allow Medicare to negotiate, what that's going to do is it's going to take innovation in the, in the pharmaceutical sector and just drive it into the ground. Is that a reasonable concern?
0: No, it's not. And I'll tell you why. <clears throat> that is a very blinkered viewpoint. Why is it that the rest of the world, is able to spend such low amounts on drugs because we spend more. Right. If we negotiated down our prices, other countries in the world would have to spend a little bit more. We would achieve closer parity because pharma would say, well, now that we're not making money, it, you know, 90% of our profit doesn't come from the US, the rest of the world's going to have to cough up a tad more. We are allowing the rest of the world to have us subsidize discovery for them because we're the only country that doesn't right. negotiate down prices. This is insanity. They're, this is like you're going to a bazaar to negotiate and everyone around you is paying a tenth the price you are because the vendor's like, well, that's fine. I'm going to make all my money from this sucker
1: over here. And And this should be a bipartisan thing because in fact, that's exactly the sort of thing that President Trump has been arguing about other countries and in, in various other forms, you know, in, in terms of NATO and defense and so forth. So you would think that the left and the right could get together on this. But, of course, uh, the pharmaceutical lobby is a pretty powerful thing.
0: Yeah. So, you know, to, you've hit on two core themes of the book. First, look, I'm a centrist. I'm actually a registered independent. Right. I'm not political. I don't care whether you're on the left or the right. We're getting ripped off in this country. And there's lots of ways that both parties could come together and create a system that appeals to both parties. In fact, as I point out, um, the model that I think is the best model, which is both single payer and private multi-payer layered on top, is successfully done in Australia. And President Trump has actually publicly called out how effective the Australian healthcare system is. There, as your, To your point, there's lots of opportunity for bipartisanship if we can get people out of their silo. So the, the second point is that as you've pointed out, both the Democrats and Republicans are interested in finding ways to reduce drug costs. So it is difficult to understand why we can't come to an agreement on this concept of we need to negotiate down our prices to help hold other countries accountable to, pe- to spend a little more collectively,
1: that right. so
0: we can start to, to narrow that gap. That actually is a bipartisan concept that we just are, we're so stuck in our partisan ways, we just can't get past.
1: Now, up earlier, you mentioned this, that, that a, a plan that to work in the U.S. context had to find some sort of compromise or, or bring together this sort of don't tread on me and united we stand. And and I thought, at least a lot of people thought that the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, some people would call it, at least went part way to that direction because of course it you know it did some more public stuff by expanding expanding uh, uh Medicaid and other things, but it also created marketplaces that did give people choices. And so I'm wondering what you think about what you thought about the Affordable Care Act as sort of if not an end goal, at least a bridge to something better.
0: Yeah, so I, I think it's a great point. And I think, to your point, the, the Affordable Care Act was, was actually based on a Republican health plan. So it really, truly should have been bipartisan, but was clearly not in retrospect. I am a supporter of the Affordable Care Act. I think it filled a critical void for our country. But it it was exactly as you said, a bridge to something else. And even President Obama has said that he views it as a starter house. It was the way to get started on healthcare reform. It was never the end goal. The fundamental flaws of the Affordable Care Act, and remember, it's been a very good thing. It's helped insure 18 million more Americans than had insurance before. But it had two Achilles heels. The first was that it, it depended on expanding a system that's already ripping us off. So how often is it true that you're getting ripped off in a business and you decide, yeah, I'm liking this. Let me invest more money into right. the rip Who leans into the ripoff? That does not make sense long-term. Number two, and this gets to the don't tread on me, the Affordable, Act, the Affordable Care Act really could only work as other countries have made private multi-payer systems work with an individual mandate. You must pay into the system. Health insurance is like a pyramid scheme. Healthcare is so expensive that it requires dozens and dozens and dozens of healthy people to pay premiums to cover the cost of one person who's unlucky enough to get sick. And if healthcare becomes too expensive and the healthy people say to themselves, I'll take my chances, I don't want to pay into the kitty, I'm going to save my money, the healthcare system falls apart, the insurance scheme falls apart. You need to have the individual mandate because you must force healthy people to pay into the plan to cover the cost of the sick. But people in this country hated the concept of an individual mandate. And that is why private multi-payer systems by themselves cannot work in the United States. They do not respect don't tread on me, don't force me. But a single-payer system doesn't require an individual mandate. It just levies taxes like every other tax we pay. We pay our taxes. The government pays for health care. There's no individual mandate. You can layer on top of that a private marketplace so that people say, well, I've already paid my taxes, but I like choice, so I'm going to pay a little extra on my own at my own discretion to purchase my own private plan too. In the book, the analogy I use is, you're driving on the freeway and there's a toll lane or an express lane next to you. You're paying your taxes for the public freeway lanes you've already paid, but you say today the traffic is bad, I'm gonna pay some extra to get into the express lane next door. That's exactly the same concept that Australia and New Zealand use. A single payer system covers everybody, everybody pays in with taxes, but whoever wants to can choose to purchase a private plan to use instead.
1: Now, I think one thing we hear a lot, especially from the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, is it seems, at least it seems simple on the face, just said, well, let's just have everyone be in Medicare. It's pretty straightforward. It's a big system. We know how it works. We know that it works at, I believe, considerably lower administrative costs. And so I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Why don't we just say Medicare for all?
0: Yeah, that's a single-payer system. Uh-huh. I am personally in favor of a single-payer system. You are correct. Medicare pays less than two percent of its cost to administration, and it has no profit. Private health insurance pays closer to ten percent on administration, and sixteen percent. Uh, 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 sorry, three to four percent profit margin. So they total around sixteen percent of costs between administration and profit. So it's much less expensive and much more efficient to deliver care via Medicare. But that's where you run into don't tread on me. There are enough Americans who feel very strongly they want an option. They don't want to be told you must use this. I don't see a reason why we can't learn from what other countries have done and the way I phrase this is, look, you're a Democrat. You think single payer is the way to go. You're a Republican. You think private multi-payer is the way to go. Let's do them both and let them compete head to head. What could be more American than that?
1: And I think if I recall correctly, one of the problems, at least initially, with President Obama's Affordable Care Act was he actually wanted what's called a public option to sort of compete with these with these private insurers but that was that was torpedoed pretty quickly i guess because private private insurers realized that they just wouldn't be able to compete with that and so that would presumably be a problem going forward in that kind of competition i think we probably know who's going to win right
0: well uh, you know to your point um i think the problem with the public option competition is that it keeps corporate profits down Mm -hmm. and in australia uh, the there is a current debate that was described very nicely in a vox article a few months ago vox.com about why is the public spending so much money to subsidize the private marketplace the private marketplace is sort of is is not able to contain its costs as effectively as the single payer system and and the public is actually subsidizing that private marketplace now i would point out that's exactly what culture is about Culture in a country is about people making choices for what their priorities are, for where their money should go. And if Americans, if 40 to 45% of Americans say, I don't care if single payer is less expensive, I don't trust government, I want choice. I'm willing to spend more to have that choice. That's a cultural choice. And to me, the, 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 the beauty of the Australian system is that it does allow both. It's not either or. It's not you have single payer or private multi-payer. It's you have both. That's a choice we can make to bridge that cultural divide between don't tread on me and united we stand.
1: And it seems to me, I mean, President Trump hasn't come out with a health care proposal, but my sense of things on the conservative side is that the general thrust is that healthcare needs to be actually more market oriented and that they want to see less government and more competition and more transparency. And the expectation is that, like in markets and anything else, if People, uh, if there's transparency and there's good competition, because I know that's a problem in healthcare sometimes, that we're actually going to get higher quality, more efficiency, and better outcomes. Uh, what do you What do you say in response to that? I think probably most commonly heard conservative argument about how we make healthcare better in this country.
0: Those arguments, and again, remember, I'm a centrist and independent, and I couldn't care less about politics. Those arguments are simply not true. The, the, the data simply do not support those arguments. International models have consistently shown, you can even look in the United States at Medicare versus private insurance, that single payer systems are much less expensive and much more efficient than private multi-payer systems. The reason to have a private multi-payer system is not price control. The reason is culture. It's Choice. It's a suspicion of government. We have to admit that. If your concern is money, I want to spend less money and I want to have more efficient health care, then you need a single payer system. If your concern is I don't like being told what to do and I don't trust government to tell me what to do, I want options, then you need a private multi payer system. And if your concern is both, because of a mix of the population in this great melting pot of a country we have, has half the people on one side and half on the other, then the solution is to do both and let them compete head to head.
1: Right. Now, it seems to me on the other side of things that Joe Biden's proposals on health care are really, uh, almost it seems to me like an Obamacare 2.0. He wants to expand it a little bit, increase Medicaid eligibility, maybe allow People get on Medicare a little younger, some more taxes, uh, subsidies, tax credits, that sort of thing. But that strikes me as being kind of more of the same and not really getting at maybe some of these fundamental things that you're talking about.
0: I think that's exactly right. And I will be honest with you, reading in between the lines and listening to what former VP Biden has said and current candidate Biden has said and written and I'm not sure this is what Biden wants. I think this is what Biden thinks he can get done. The history of healthcare reform in this country is not a happy, pleasant one. Yeah. Lots of politicians have broken their careers on health care reform. So the reason I wrote this book is to change the dialogue. The American people need to realize that they are getting catastrophically ripped off. The average cost of a health insurance premium for family coverage in the United States now, according to a survey of two thousand employers, is twenty thousand dollars per year. The cost of a new car every year, just to purchase the premium for family coverage, that is split two thirds to the employer and one third to the employee on average. Imagine if those costs were two thirds less. And all that excess money went into the pockets of your worker and into your corporate portfolio to reinvest in your business. Here's an astounding fact. The Republicans were very proud to pass a corporate tax cut which they said would grow jobs and grow the economy. Total annual US corporate tax collections $320 $320 billion per year. Total amount of money spent by those same companies on healthcare for their employees, $1.1 $1. $1 trillion wow. per year. Wow. Yeah. You really want to grow the economy? You really want to wage increase and put more po- money into the pockets of Americans? Move healthcare out of insurance benefits for, for employers and move it into a national system.
1: Now, and you mentioned this a couple of times that. It, it is frustratingly difficult to, even in, in light of these very good arguments that make a hell of a lot of sense to me, for sure, that it's tough to get things done on the national level. So what about the possibility of states, at least some states, acting on their own, at least partly? You know, you mentioned California in the book. And of course, California is oftentimes, you know, for better or worse, held up as a model of progressivism or trying out new things. And, you know, now they have a, a Democratic governor and you know Democratic supermajorities in the state legislature. You'd think if any state could do something big on health care to test some of this out, it would be California. And of course, you have a personal interest in California, given that you live and work there. So can, can you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And as you know, I spend an entire chapter on the book discussing just that concept. Why not try something out at a state level, pilot it to make sure it works and work out all the kinks before you go national? And it turns out that that may not be legally possible. The reasons relate to two, primarily to two bits of law. The first is Section 1115 of the Social Security Act, which is a Medi Cal waiver. The feds are able to essentially control how states allocate funds under the Medicaid program. And states are allowed to ask for a waiver from federal rules so they can try out uh, innovative demonstration projects. Those waivers are at the discretion of the Department, the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, which means the administration. If the administration is not in favor of the demonstration project, it doesn't matter if the state wants to do it or not. They cannot use Medicaid funds as part of that demonstration. The second law is actually even harder to overcome because if the current administration wasn't in favor, you just wait four years for a new administration and maybe the next one will be. The second law is called ERISA. Don't ask me to cite what the letters stand for, E-R-I-S-A. Essentially, it's a law that governs federal, uh, uh, sorry, employee benefit packages. And what it says is that only the federal government can control and regulate employee benefit packages. There's two funding sources that a state would need to fund a new healthcare system. It would need Medicare and Medicaid, and it would need private health dollars to replace employer-sponsored health insurance. And ERISA makes it illegal for states to modify those, those packages. So if you had a very motivated president and a very motivated federal administration that was willing to look past, ignore, not enforce ERISA, and was willing to grant an 1115 waiver, you could pilot a project like this at the state level. If not, it's not possible.
1: Yeah, that, that, that seems tough, but who knows, it might be easier to do than actually pass you know, significant health care reform. And, and, and that leads me to my final question for you is, given all this, how optimistic are you that we're going to see any sort of significant movement toward the sort of healthcare system that almost seems like every other country, rich country like us in the world has in terms of access, cost, efficiency and health outcomes? How likely do you think that is to happen in in the near term future?
0: Well, <clears throat> um, it's not possible to say, of course, but I will say so, with any absolutism, but I will speak in relative terms much more likely today than five years ago.
1: Okay.
0: The history of our country is not one of gradual incremental change. The history of our country is, is, and it doesn't matter what aspect you look at, you could look at civil rights, you could look at the rights of African-Americans, you could look at the white, the, uh, you, you could look at the rights of women voters, you could look at LGBT rights. It's years and years of toil laying the groundwork having the discussion, talking in the media, lobbying government, writing books, going on TV. And then suddenly something snaps and triggers and change occurs. Think how quickly we went from don't don't ask, don't tell to gay marriage is illegal. And the civil rights, I mean, we struggled from the Civil War to Reconstruction and Jim Crow laws. And then the civil rights movement launched in 1965, and things started to change quickly. Maybe not as quickly as we all think should happen, but it doesn't tend to be slow, steady, gradual change. It tends to be when something's ready for change, when the ground is matured enough, things change. And the fact is, surveys show Americans are almost at the end of their rope on health care. They're tired of spending the amount of money they have to spend. They're tired of medical bankruptcies. We are to the point where enough people are frustrated that I do think we could have a conversation in the coming four to eight years about meaningful reform.
1: Well, that's definitely a conversation. I hope we have, and I hope it uh, leads to some sort of meaningful reform. And, and again, "it uh, broken, bankrupt, and dying" is the book. I, I think it was a. It's a great book. I highly recommend it. And Dr. Spielberg, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about it today. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. That's it for today's show. We hope you like what you heard. If you'd like a second full-length Politics Guys episode every single week as opposed to just these occasional interviews, you can get that by becoming a Patreon supporter. Supporters also get ad-free versions of every episode as well as other good stuff. To get the details and to become a supporter, just go to patreon.com politicsguys. And if you can't afford to become a supporter, to email me at Mike at PoliticsGuys.com and I will get you full access to that second episode every single week. And if being a monthly supporter is too much of a commitment, but you still like to help us out occasionally, you can do that too through PayPal. You'll find the link on our website, slash support. If you haven't already subscribed to the show, that is a big help, as well as leaving ratings and reviews and especially sharing your favorite episodes on social media. That's a big deal to us. And if you've got a question, comment, correction, gripe, or whatever, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. For more great discussions, check out our Bipartisan Politics subreddit. You'll find the URL in the show notes. We've also got a Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash page And we're on Twitter at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, and Chris Wilkerson. Today's show was produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show next week. We hope you'll join us.